Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the translation of a ship's log aboard a huge Chinese sailing vessel offers extraordinary proof the Chinese explored the interior of North America decades before Columbus. They talk about animals, they talk about plants, they talk about specific species that only exist in the upper Mississippi River Valley region. This podcast is supported by the good people at Paranormal Contractors, a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. If you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business, this is no time to be dealing with amateur ghost hunters. You need to bring in the professionals. Paranormal Contractors use the latest technology to investigate, authenticate, and remediate your ghost or demon problem. Call 1-866-724-0800, 1-866-724-0800, or email them at paranormalcontractors at gmail.com. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Lori Bonner Nicholas is standing by to talk about the explosive and controversial book To the Gates of Feng Tu, The Chinese in Pre-Columbian America. Lori is an independent historical researcher on America's prehistory. She co-authored Chasing Dragons, The True History of the Piazza, along with her husband Mark Nicholas. In it, they examine the mural on an outcropping along the Mississippi River upstream from St. Louis. They present convincing evidence that this painting is from an early 15th century Chinese exploration of the North American continent. Lori and her husband have lectured internationally in China, Malaysia, and London on their research and were featured speakers at the Midwestern Epigraphic Society. Arising from dragons, Laurie spent over the last decade translating the concluding 15 chapters over the lost manuscript from the Ming Dynasty's early 15th century circumnavigation of the globe. These chapters, which comprise Laurie's translation to the Gates of Feng Tu, make it obvious that the Chinese sailors visited America's largest native city, Cahokia. Laurie Nicholas, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Doing good. Good to hear from you. What do you say to people who who actually believe that, aside from the indigenous peoples of North America, Columbus was first? I would say that the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific are a lot smaller to see in the eyes of seafaring peoples than people give them credit for. People were a lot smarter than for a lot longer then a lot of people are willing to admit. If you don't have Facebook to keep up with, you have time to do a lot more things. (laughs) Yes, like build huge ocean-going vessels. Mm Mm-hmm. So the contention here is that that the Chinese explorers were here something like 60 years before Columbus in 1492. So in the 1430s, what was happening? Was this the Ming Dynasty? Yes, it was. 
in the late 1300s, there'd been a turnover. Uh, the Han had kicked out the Mongols. The grandfather of uh, Yongla, who started a big bunch of exploration voyages, had come into power and had made himself emperor with the help of his friends. And by the 1430s, the grandson of Yongla, Jandi, had decided that everybody needed to know that he had um, come to the throne. And he took up the idea his grandfather had and decided to put out the word that, according to him, he was emperor of the entire universe. And people needed to pay attention to China. So talk to me about the, the, the vessels that they were, they were uh, building. What did they look like? How large were they? Well, yeah. If you take your kids to soccer, think about standing at one end of a soccer field and think about twice as long. If there were two of those soccer fields end to end, that was the size of ship you had. And they had come up with, they had bamboo. They'd come up with the idea that like bamboo, when you had separate sections, no matter what happened, if one section, if you did only lost one section, you stayed afloat. So they had watertight compartments. They had a way to have an intercom through their ships. They had some very amazing tech that just was centuries ahead of their time. They were about, oh, okay. 400 U.S. feet. 400 feet long. My word. Yes. Multi-masted, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Oh, they were huge. They had workshops. They had um, temples on board. They had, I mean, they had, it was a floating city. Like today's aircraft carrier, it was literally a floating city. It had everything you would need to go anywhere. And these were the big Bauschwans, uh treasure ships that were the, you know, like an aircraft carrier. They were the main ships that the rest of a um, unit of their fleet would have been kind of orbiting around as if it was the sun, like a task force or carrier group. Right. And how do they navigate? With the stars? Um, yeah. We've done some study, and their method of navigation, they had done uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, they, the Yan, the, the song before them, had done hundreds and hundreds of years of observation. So they knew every visible star. And they knew any given day when a particular star would be over Nanjing at the stroke of local midnight. So they could take their knowledge of a star map and say, okay, this is here. It's over Nanjing. We know this. We have our ephemeris tables. We know star A is over Nanjing tonight. Um, star B is directly over us at midnight tonight and it's thus and such far from the north star so they could take that and plot as long as they could see that star they knew what was at home and they knew exactly where they were longitude and latitude without knowing longitude and latitude as we know them today and have we or you uncovered any of these Chinese star charts and maps or planispheres? Well, um, 
there's a lot of them out there. But one thing we did, I was going through a particular chapter in the book I'm translating, and I suddenly realized I know this phrase because the the chapter, I mean, the, the paragraph in the chapter was gobbledygook, it, gibberish, until I realized one phrase was a reference to a particular star. And then I started looking at the stars and old astronomical terms, and I realized, looking at it, the work, uh, taking some information on uh, celestial navigation I pulled out of, my husband and I pulled out of, uh, a book by Gavin Menzies, we were able to start realizing that this was not just somebody talking about fireworks, as some other people have said. This was a list of dates, um, locations, and you know the three mapping points that you would use the local star and the Nanjing star in relation to the North Star and be able to figure out exactly where you were on, and map it out on a terrestrial globe. We have mapping points that start, I mean, are starting to outline the continents. And I'm not just talking Europe and Asia. I'm talking the Americas. And we got very excited when we started finding that out. And how are you able to date the uh, these maps and so forth and these, these uh, uh, log entries? Well... We started there. We started with the last absolute, and the last absolute we know is we, you know, the reports are that before his reported death, the leader of the expedition, a devout Muslim, had gone to do Hajj, and the time for Hajj, and this lined up with information in the book where they were in Venice at the time of Carnival. That time of Carnival is right at the, at the time of Hajj in Mecca and Medina. And so we started lining up. We, we found a date that gave that it was a particular phase of the moon. We knew that they were there. We knew the approximate time, the year, um, right at the beginning of February. And then when we started working from there, everything started lining up. It was like some kind of crazy dream, dream, but it was real. And it all started to make sense in ways that just were mind-blowing. And the leader of this expeditionary fleet, uh, known as the eunuch admiral, tell me about him. Zheng Ha. Uh, Zheng Ha was born in Henan. Um, during, he was uh, ethnically Hui Muslim. Uh, ethnically, uh, Muslim. Uh, about the age of 11, 12, uh, the, there was rumors that his family was siding with the Yuan and his, they were village leaders. The village was overrun and he was among the young men taken in a way as an example. is a bit, bit of a more than implied threat, uh, made court eunuchs to serve the new rising Ming dynasty, uh, which is under uh, the first emperor, Hongwu, he ended up associated with Hongwu's son, Yongle, who was Judy at the time, Yongle is emperor. And he kind of grew up in service to, to him. And as uh, Judy, who would be Yongle, rose among the ranks of his brothers, 
as a capable leader. He was his right-hand man. He was his um, number one aide. Uh, he was born uh, Mahe. Uh, and he, when uh, things got a little bit dicey in the royal family and Hongwu made his grandson rather than one of his sons uh, emperor, and the grandson was a bit full of himself and problematic, Judy made himself young Le and made um, Jianwen, uh, that grandson, not emperor anymore. It had a lot to do with their concept of uh, the mandate of heaven, which goes to the idea that if you're a scumbag, and it doesn't matter if you're born emperor, you're not, uh, the gods don't want you to keep it, and it's righteous for somebody else to take it. So Hongwu um, wrote a lot on that, saying this was absolutely something that needed to be adhered to. And Judy said, sounds like a good day idea, Dad. <laughs> okay. And, and how many expeditions were there? This goes back to the, the title that Zheng He, which is what he, the name he was given as a gift for a success in a battle. He was also given another uh, nickname, and that was the San Bao. Now, a lot of people know that name, but don't know they know it. We've all heard, most all of us have heard of Sinbad the Sailor and his seven voyages. Ah, yes. This is the guy that was based on. Ah. And so, seven sets of voyages. I would say seven cycles of voyages because there was multiple units of the main fleet. But this guy, the Sanbao, corrupted to Sinbad, was the number one admiral, kind of uh, like, America's general who, or admiral who is the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was basically that role for his emperor. Now, it's interesting because a lot of the explorers from Europe were trying to find a shortcut to the, uh, the short, a shortcut to the, <laughs> to the, uh, to the east, to the far east, without having to, mm-hmm. to uh, navigate around the, uh, the Cape. So, well, where were, what were the Chinese explorers looking for? Where were they going? Because they're already in the in the Far East. Well, there is some there are some little twists and turns to that story that most people aren't aware of. The Pope at the time had said, "Okay, this set of sea routes belong to our good friends in Portugal." The rest of you can go the other direction if you want to go to the same place. And so the Portuguese put very heavy taxes and controls and tariffs on people cutting through their areas. And everybody thinks, well, they were stiffing these other guys. Uh, Now, I'll come back to that in that the Chinese uh, had been given a mandate by Yonghua, uh, because there's some rumors that, that that nephew that he removed from being emperor had run off towards the sunrise. There were also um, hints and comments from a book called the Shanghai Jing that talked about people sailing towards the sunrise. As far back as Qin Shi Huangdi, number one emperor that started China, there was rumors about people going towards the sunrise and not returning. So Yongle said, okay, We'll go everywhere and tell everyone that we have taken China back from the Mongols. And throughout history, power goes to he who owns the maps, who knows how to get everywhere, who knows how to get there easily, 
because they have the greatest access to trade, greatest access to resources. And he had it. And so they sent people literally in all directions. Like I said, multiple units in that great fleet. And they sent out uh, missionaries, uh, scouts, and people to map. Like I said, knowledge is power. Maps are uh, a weapon both of war and of commerce. And like I said, I, I come back to the fact that everybody thinks that the Spanish and so on got shorted because Henry the Navigator and his crew got the rights to go down and south and around Africa, and the other one, people got the other direction. Now, I don't think the Spanish got shorted because in 1433, uh, the while this great admiral, Jungha, the son of Taijan, was in Mecca and Medina doing Hajj, he had sent a diplomatic group to what he and the Chinese believed was the center of European society, the banking center, the financial center, an area that they knew was at the other end of the trade routes, and it was Venice. Now it gets fun. Columbus was not lying. He just wasn't quite saying what he was saying. Okay, in the midst of a big old shindig, during Carnival, the Chinese thought the Italians were riding in the streets. They were a bit perturbed. They had some fun, in, some very fun descriptions of the wild partying in Venice. But in the midst of this, in walked the papal legate. And he said, excuse me, this is not the center of European culture and civilization. You guys got to go to Rome. And he picked up all the party, yes, that diplomatic unit, and all the gifts they were giving to the Doge. One of the gifts was maps. Columbus, 60 years afterwards, would have expected to have met merchant colonies where he was going. Chinese merchant colonies. He wasn't looking for China. He was looking for Chinese merchants. Because a few popes later, after they confiscated the maps, which were among the gifts they were giving the Doge, along came, this is going to be funny, Alexander Borgia. Alexander Borgia had a nickname. And this was that same pope who gave the Portuguese those southern routes. His nickname was the Spaniard. You're starting to figure out where Columbus got the maps he wrote to family members about? From the Chinese. From the Pope, who stole them from the Doge, who got them from the Chinese. Aha. Uh -huh. So, not only then Columbus, I'm guessing, but also uh, Vasco da Gama, Magellan, Cook, were they all using Chinese maps? Um, yeah. Uh, a number of them uh, have, may, have been written down in history as making really weird comments like, oh, that's not quite the way I thought it was going to look. And... Uh, they acted on expectations that they were, I mean, they would tell people, oh, set this course because we, you know, we don't want to go over that way because we'll run aground. The Chinese would have known that because they'd already uh, done the depth soundings and so forth. And these head navigate, uh, these head, these captains, these leaders of various expeditions knew things that you couldn't guess. 
So yes, very clearly they would have had those maps. And I think it was Cabot. He went straight across the way, uh, it appears he went straight across the way the Chinese did. And if you want to know how the Chinese did, if you've ever watched weather maps, when a storm system comes across that becomes a hurricane, it starts off the coast of Africa and it kind of rides a warm corridor of air and water across there. That's a major current, major Atlantic current. And I mean, you could lose your sails and ride that across. And it sweeps right up to, guess where? Cape Breton. Cape Breton headlands. Same location where you find Oxo Meadows, which is where a northern current um, hits that southern coming north current right there at the mouth of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Last week, I welcomed a new sponsor to Conspiracy Unlimited, Life Change Tea. And I told you how I had received my first batch of this amazing caffeine-free organic herbal tea in the mail. It's brewed, steeped, and consumed cold. And each package contains eight tea bags, which is enough for one month. Now, almost immediately after drinking my first refreshing glass, I felt more energized. And that's because Life Change Tea acts as a mild detox that gently cleanses your colon and removes unwanted waste. After a couple of weeks, I even managed to shed a few extra pounds. This is no ordinary tea, and it's not available in any store. So, if you want to get on board and discover for yourself the amazing, cleansing, energizing qualities of Life Change Tea, go to GetTheTea.com. That's GetTheTea.com. And listeners of Conspiracy Unlimited can get their first order shipped free simply by entering the code UNLIMITED. Life Change Tea. Order yours today at GetTheTea.com. In another reality, Richard is a very strong and handsome man. Just not in our reality. Although I heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day, and it was, good, good, a handsome man, Richard is. I made that up. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Author, researcher, lecturer, Lori Nicholas is here discussing Chinese explorers in pre-Columbian America. Magellan is, is credited with being the first to circumnavigate the world. Mm-hmm. So the Chinese beat him to it by how many years? Um, between 1405 and 1435, uh, with a gap right before this last set of voyages in the 1430s. So they beat Magellan by what, a century? Pretty much. My word. All right, so now let's talk about the Chinese explorers or the expedition arriving in North America. Mm-hmm. When did that happen? And and who is who is leading this expedition? Well, which time? Well, let's say the first... The, uh, well, the first set, um, there was uh, some fellows in, during the Song Dynasty. And like I said, that came up as the Shanghai Jing. But this set, then there was the 1420s, where there was a map in the hands, of, I believe, a gentleman named Liu Gang, that it was around 1418. So they were there at that time, but they only got really to the coast. And then there was the last expedition, which is mm, 1433, 34, more or less, 
where they got to North America and mapped it from shore to shore. Shore to shore. Wow. And uh, at some point they they land, they're in St. Louis, right? Modern day St. Louis? Well, that, okay, I was talking about that that eddy point at the mouth of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. They had come up the St. Lawrence, down the Ohio-Illinois river system, and they had come down to what's uh, now Cahokia. And they talk about a couple of locations. And again, it gets back to those star maps. They talk about a couple of locations that match a pair of Chinese constellations, one of which would have been directly overhead at the same time the Chinese were at the location. And that's where it gets even more strange. The map matches the layout. The star map matches exactly the layout of uh, the Cahokia Mound Complex including uh, Corona Borealis, a circle of stars that matches the location of a place called Woodhenge, which is like Stonehenge, but a passive solar uh, lunar calendar observatory. And weirder still, it also matches the layout of a great number of the Mayan mother cities, um, sacred complexes down south, which makes me have some interesting ancestors. I'll say. We should talk about the book, To the Gates of Feng Tu, which is a translation of the Admiral Admiral's Logs, correct? Um, we're not sure exactly how or what or whose logs or diaries it is, but in Chapter 98, there's a discussion of putting aside um, one copy uh, of everything and sealing it up in the Royal Archives for about 150 years. So it would have included uh, Zheng He's logs. Uh, it would have included some of the logs and records of the subcommanders under him as well. But it got a little hot to handle, messed again, like I said, with that mandate of heaven idea. And some people had made bad choices. Not just my ancestors, who the Chinese found disturbing because they ate the neighbors. It was a Mayan thing. <laughs> <laughs> that makes people laugh, which is better than going, ew. <laughs> well, I mean, it is very controversial as well. I mean, uh, uh, well, 25%, uh, the statistics are that 25% of all um, bone trash found in trash middens at Cahokia are human. Mm -hmm. um, Mains and with signs of being uh, butchered. So, like I said, uh, the ancestors were a little inappropriate, socially inappropriate, especially in the minds of the Chinese. My mind too, but I'm kind of glad we don't do that anymore. Holidays would have been a little ooky. <laughs> right, right. Now, uh, how was the how was this log uncovered, and then who translated it? Okay, um, this has been around since about 1587 or so. It was initially published as kind of a serial. Now, same as Dickens would publish serials, sections. Uh, it ended up 100 chapters. Uh, my book, To the Gates of Fang Two, is the last 15 of those chapters. I started from the la last everybody agreed the fleet had gotten to a point, which was um, what's now Saudi Arabia. And... It goes from there onward through the end of the book with the fleets returning to um, 
make their report to Jean D, which was that grandson of the emperor who had begun the voyages. And in 2004, my husband and I found and got an idea. We were both writing for an outdoor magazine that does hunting and fishing in the St. Louis area. And he had an idea and I said, well, go for it. Um, chase after it. There was a local odd uh, relic known as the Piasaw. And he looked at that and he said, you know, I think that's Chinese. I said, well, chase after it. And you'll have to ask him about that. Things got crazy from there. And the next year, my, you know, we ended up in China for the 600th anniversary of the first sailing of the Ming Dynasty's treasure fleet in 1405. And that summer after we got back my husband and I were looking at each other saying well what do we do now I don't know whatever comes next and we found a book and I flipped to a later chapter and in that later chapter we found a uh, description of a place and I said I don't think this was translated right because to me this sounds like a powwow not the underworld and that was our first contact with um Luol Madang's An Account of the Western World Voyages of the Sanbao Eunuch. And it's about the last, the seventh set of voyages by Zheng Ha. And we literally put out a request that literally went around the world the next February. And since then, I've been working on this translation uh, from literary Mandarin of this, what very clearly is an account of North America in the 1430s. And how has this been received, uh, let's say, by uh, academia? Because I'm imagining that this would send shockwaves through the community. That Let's face it, textbooks would have to be rewritten. Uh, tenure could be at stake here. Uh, th- this would be very challenging to many uh, academicians. How is it received? Well, let's put it this way. There's a reason why I didn't mention the, the author of the book or the title of the book I found the original records in. Because I asked her if she had, I I made email contact. I asked her if she had read it in the original language. And she kind of exploded. I I mean, you know that you have set somebody's hair on fire when they start using the ultimate academic threat of who do you work for? Because there's an implication with that. And that implication is that so I can get you fired, so I can get your tenure revoked, so that I can get you uh, burned and unemployable. I told her I was fully independent and didn't work for anybody. She got angrier. And basically, because she kind of told every, because when she started getting really nasty, I just kind of included a whole bunch of people in the email chain. And she said, uh, Never mention her name again. Pretend she was never born. Lock her out of your emails. I kind of became Voldemort, <laughs> which I found really kind of satisfying and kind of horrifying. But one of our colleagues in our research community, a wonderful guy by the name of Chao Chen, said, I am going to make a prediction. No one is ever going to mention you. And again, you were talking about that whole revoking of tenure. We invalidate so many shallow lack of scholarship. I mean, clearly the author I'm speaking of had not done her homework. She had not read the stuff herself. She'd simply read what someone else said. 
that someone else said that someone else said that someone else said. I mean, all I can say is, is history is not supposed to be Talmudic studies where a rabbi quotes a rabbi quotes a rabbi quotes a rabbi. You're supposed to be going back to those original uh, material. Uh, we spoke in Nanjing in, no, excuse me, Nanjing in 2005. We did get published then. But we were supposed to be part of a group publication of papers in 2010 when we went to an international uh, conference in Malacca, Malaysia. And there were certain people who fought three years to keep our material out of publication. They succeeded keeping our paper at the time that clearly identified Cahokia as being in this um, account in exhaustive detail. They kept that from being from seeing the light of day. We had to go to self-publishing. Uh, we're now uh, beginning a relationship on a second edition of our book, Chasing Dragons, which is a lot of that initial material. Uh, what follows, you know, all of this. And oh, if you like conspiracies, you're going to have fun with that. But we're going to be coming out with a second edition of that that gives what happens after this. Why people have not been able to find this material. Why it's been buried. Who buried it. What their agendas were. In the log, does it make mention of recognizable geographical features in North America, like the Rocky Mountains, like the Mississippi River, uh, like, like the, the Great Plains? Like the Niagara Falls. That's um, even better, like, yes. At, they they lay all of that out perfectly. They talk about animals. They talk about plants. They talk about specific species that only exist in the upper Mississippi River Valley region. It, it's it's crazy how many things they mention. It it makes me laugh because they, there's one point where you could use two different sections of the book as a recipe. One to make hominy and the other one to make pemmican. They do the description so carefully. My husband just handed me a list. Uh, they they talk about the Iron Mountains south of here. Uh, they talk about the rivers, the layout of the rivers. One of the largest freestanding bodies of almost laboratory pure iron is just south of here in a place called Iron County. It's the Iron Iron Mountain. The Chinese talk about going down there. Uh, Chinese didn't have much they wanted, didn't have much they needed. They had stuff that other people would want to buy, but the Chinese had everything. But they were short something. They were short of iron. Mm. That was more precious to them than gold because they were a budding military-industrial complex. They could not keep growing the way they were growing without massive um, influxes of the resource of iron and they talked they talked about the detail they have about just south of here in the u.s state of missouri that it's they talk about what they found where they found the, the descriptions of the area as well as that of cahokia as well as that of the st louis mound complex it just it absolutely down the line you can literally take the book and travel along the route, and and it matches physical feature after physical feature. The style of living, the clothing, the food, the worship styles, they match, you know, since Cahokia vanished, they match everything that came into the historical record 
of what was down south, the surviving parts of the Mississippian culture that were there when DeSoto arrived. It matches DeSoto's records. Do they they discuss how they interacted with the various, I mean, you mentioned the Mayans earlier, and they weren't exactly enamored with some of their cultural practices, but did they they talk about how they interacted with some of the other indigenous uh, groups, let's say the Cherokee or the the Sioux? Well, uh, it was the, the culture of the Mississippi Valley region really had, I mean, with as many rivers as there were, those were all one interactive group. So there is a conversation in one of the chapters, actually two of the chapters, where um, there's court cases. And what's funny is I think it's probably one of the earliest paternity lawsuits on record where they talk about being out on the Great Plains and being in the Buffalo camps and having uh, some of the uh, Chinese explorers get hungry and decide that they needed the buffalo meat that the people were um, harvesting out on the Great Plains from the thousands of hundreds, which is their words, of wild water buffaloes out on those vast open grasslands. Uh, They needed it more than they thought the locals did, and the locals were not amused. So were some women who got loved and left. Like I said, they were demanding some um, patern- some child support in that scene. It was kind of bizarre. Hmm. A little bit later, they talk about one group going up the what would the Red River. They, they they talk about the Missouri River being the Big Muddy. They were talking about one group after the groups reported in going back up that river, and they said, "Well, hurry because we're going to be leaving." So. That group, backbone of which would have been Mongol uh, cavalry, they would have done the transportation and support and a lot of the defense, went up that river. And there's a reason why my Blackfoot ancestors up that direction ride like Mongols. Ah, interesting. Fascinating. But African-American Southeast, that gets cool. There was uh, a guy out and about with his... A metal detector around Asheville, North Carolina, and he found a, a hunk of um, brass. And that has been identified as the uh, medallion of office of Zheng Ha. And there's also stories of somebody called, that, that's termed the Cherokee Giant. And they talk about he was very tall, he could call down thunder and lightning. He could move with incredible swiftness, and he was, yeah, he was seven foot tall, and he taught us how to live together in peace, and that's in that general area as well. And on top of that, there's a rock. Now, there's a couple places with rocks like this rock, one of which is uh, Casa Benita in uh, the American Southwest. Another one is what they call the Judicala Stone. And then there's a medallion that all have one thing in it. And it's basically, a, oh, and I forgot, California. There's these four places have this thing. And this thing, if you know what it is, is a pair of comets. And there's a medallion that's pretty famous. It's in a book called Hero, Hawk, and Open Hand, I believe is a picture of it. That's a medallion that's a comet, but it's pre-Columbian. Um, and it is got a hand with an eye in it. If you turn it to one side, it is a comet. 
and that hand is the head of the comet. And this hand is a Buddhist symbol. Again, it's pre-Columbian. But the one of the things the guys were following was these comets. <gasps> they were tracking the, or these comets that were in the sky. That was part of their mandate with this last set of voyages was to follow these twin comets. And it's on that stone. It's said to be this Judicala, this seven-foot-tall guy's handprints. But the crazy thing is, the leader of this expedition had one very strong identifying feature. He was seven foot tall. Hmm. Chinese had cannon. So they, hand cannon, mobile cannon, they were, they had gunpowder. They would have been able to call down thunder and lightning in the way of cannon. So down in that American Southeast is that reference to these guys um and it gets crazier i've got a lot of very friendly european ancestors but i've also got chickasaw blackfoot osage and cherokee ancestors somewhere in the mix of that i got chinese dna aha uh -huh. i have no idea except i know where these men were my daughter's genetic markers, we did DNA on hers because it kind of got both my husband and I, who he's also part Cherokee. Part, some of her markers turned up in all the places where there were major either recruiting done of um, sailors to go on the expedition or Malacca, Malaysia, where there was a major refit resupply outpost for the Ming fleet. This is all pretty dispositive evidence. How can anyone argue with this? Because uh, we make them have to go back to school. We make them have to go back and recheck their records. We have to make them go back and reevaluate everything. And we make them not look like the smartest person in the room. There was this huge problem with inertia in academia, particularly in um, the United States at this time, where they are not comfortable with making, and you've heard it if you've heard anybody talking about Elizabeth Warren, who was not a friend of hers, they are very uncomfortable with Native peoples being as smart as, if not smarter than, um, their white counterparts or contemporaries or even people of mixed ancestry, like myself. I would refer to myself as a Matisse. Um, like I said, very friendly Europeans and a number of locals. And to say this is to upset the apple cart, to change the paradigm. Their books that they make good living off of selling as textbooks have to be rewritten. Uh, they have to go back and reevaluate their own um, master's and doctoral theses. And, you know, make corrections. And like I said, they don't like not being the smartest um, kid on the block. And there's a lot of inertia in academia right now that is really sad on the idea of even cross-referencing your material between like an archaeobotanist, an archaeoastronomer, an archaeologist, and these things. I mean, you, you see resistance even against that. And don't get me started on the resistance against evaluating what is termed legends at, from the light of, is this something that has its roots in actual physical 
evidence, actual um, oral histories that may have gotten distorted over the retelling or because somebody translated them funky. How do they get a copy of to The Gates of Feng Tu, Laurie? Well, you go on Amazon and you put in the name and it's F-E-N-G-T-U, To The Gates Of, and it'll pop right up. Laurie, thanks for hanging out for the last hour. I appreciate it. Great meeting you. Oh, it's been fun talking to you. It's always fun to tell these stories. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to provide a few details on what's on tap for the next episode of Conspiracy Unlimited. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show, why not consider becoming a supporter? Go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. That's right, we've changed the name of our Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash Strange Planet. And check out our three support tiers. The Truth Seeker tier, the Whistleblower tier, and the Star Chamber tier. Donors can receive access to an exclusive monthly Google Hangout on air or a monthly live chat with me. You can also be eligible for a monthly draw and a chance to win Conspiracy Show and Conspiracy Unlimited merch. Patreon.com forward slash Strange Planet. Patreon.com forward slash Strange Planet. Your support is greatly appreciated. Coming up next time, the CEO of a biotech company reveals how mosquitoes may actually hold the secret to dramatically extending the human lifespan. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 